Welcome to Love Letters Live. And today's guest is someone so interesting. And this is going to be a slightly, a slightly different story than usual, I think, although I'm not the boss, so we'll see. I want to introduce Peter Katkoff, who is the founder, and Peter, you can tell me if I've got this right, of the Marin Philosophical Society. Is that right? Not quite. I'm not that old. Uh, I'm the current president of the Marin Philosophical Society. Okay. It and, was established and, in 1987. That's an unusual thing for today in modern life, because Okay, can we start Philosophical Society? Let's start with what I think is the um, unmanageable task of defining philosophy. You want to take a stab at it? Well, uh, one simple way to do it, and uh, some of our members agree with this, is thinking about thinking. Okay, and that's definite. That's definite. That, that's kind of the shortest. That's the trimmest. Because, you know, we go from traditional, and I mean ancient, um, philosophies, which are, you know, we go from the, from the very complicated and the very complicated mathematically to the more intuitive, simple view of things. And, you know, the difference between objective and subjective and how do we know what we know? And, but I like thinking about thinking. Okay. And because recreational thinking is so much fun anyway, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. And, in talking to you before, I kind of want to get right to this because it's um, it's it touches all our lives, which is the effect that modern technology. And I'm thinking that you were particularly interested in how, you know, email and our communications, our modern communications has had an impact and changed our lives. Is that kind of correct? Yes, I'm I, I'm interested and have been for quite some time in the effect that this, what I call computer-mediated communications has on relationships. Okay. When I say relationships, I'm talking about not just simply me talking to you or out in the world, uh -huh. but maybe most importantly and critically, my relationships with myself. Oh, okay. And the reason I say that is because... Um, uh, for, oh, I don't know, it's probably been 20, 25 years now. I kind of, I kind of got onto this uh, in, uh, as an academic. I had a period of my life where I was a, an academic and, and what, I was what working. Were doing, what were you doing as an academic? Well, I was teaching uh, and I was teaching uh, some business subjects, organization development at the University of San Francisco. Oh, and one day the boss came up to me and he says, Peter, you've taught six courses now but in a graduate program there. And uh, you know, we have things called um, accreditation and our graduate instructors really need to have a few more letters after their name. So they offered me, a, they gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. And uh, that was a doctorate in education. Oh, and uh, they said they'd pay for it if I could get into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I so, forgot about that. I did know that. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so the uh, the short version of this is, I did that, and uh, and it took a while because I had to come up with something, a topic, uh -huh. to study that I had passion for, and I was assured that I would need to have that to get through this darn thing. Okay. And I came up with what I just said, and I and I called it education's latent challenge. That is. For those people that are uh, uh, old enough, or even if they teach it now, to uh, to do a little photography in something called a dark room, and they have chemicals in the dark room, the essence of it is you have what's called a latent image on a piece of photographic paper that you put in chemicals, and that image becomes 
a parent. So education's latent challenge, it's there below the surface, but you don't see it. And so, and so I was finishing up this uh, doctorate curriculum and I needed two units. And I looked around and said, my gosh, there aren't too many two unit courses in this thing. And, and there was one called the spirituality of education. I didn't know what that meant. So I called up the instructor and she said, and this is someone who goes around to all kinds of uh, universities and educational institutions around the, the country and maybe even beyond and talks about something. She says, well, normally we have the role of the teacher and we have the role of a textbook, but what we don't have is the voice of the student in the classroom. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Really? And, her, and so I asked her, I said, well, what about the voice of technology? And she said, what are you talking about? And I told her, and she says, I want you in my class. <laughs> so the point being in that is that technology, first of all, is not neutral. And it's thought at very broadly as being something neutral. You can do with you what you want with it. And it and can do what it wants with you. Well, that's just it. When I use a fork you know, to eat, this yeah. is a form of technology. Right. I could stumbish myself or I could stab myself with that fork. Yes, yes. But it's not neutral because I have to no longer gather food with my hands before these implements were designed. I have to conform to the technology to use it. Well, if you want to get invited back, you do, yes. <laughs> yeah. okay, so so it's, it's a very simple way of saying that, that it does have an effect on people. And it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, but like uh, medicine, a, a drug which is prescribed for you for a particular ailment, mm -hmm. usually you, you get a little bit, take these many pills, and then you've got this insert in the bottle or the package that's probably six pages of two-point type uh -oh. with a lot of legalese on it. Right, yes. <laughs> Side effects. Yes. So, this is, so I use that as, as an analogy to say, you need to know the side effects of this stuff. Okay. That is the use of technology. And you're going to tell us about that. Well, I can make some suggestions and observations. And where do you want to go with this? Well, you know, I, I, what you said about um, how it's changed. I mean, it's so clear. It seems to me it's so clear how it's changed society. It's changed etiquette. It's flushed down the toilet, in my opinion. And it's changed a lot of things. It's changed how quickly we think. It's changed how we skip over things that we don't think about. So talk about that. And then talk about, you said you were interested in how it's changed you. In other words, how it changes us personally. Why don't you do that? I have a feeling well, we're all gonna relate to that. Okay, what, 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 I'm, what I'm suggesting is that, uh, is that too much use of this inter, of communicating with, that's communication that is electronically mediated will affect and has affected my relations with myself. And here's the reason why. Um, I believe, and I, I think I could uh, substantiate this, that the only real way I know myself is an authentic communion with an other, capital O, other. Like right now, I'm talking to an image of you and I'm seeing an image of me. Do you remember uh, the famous uh, painting uh, by uh, René Magritte? It shows a picture of a smoking pipe. And underneath it says, so it means this is not a pipe. 
And you look at it, I saw that thing and I think, what on earth does he mean? And of course, what he means is this is not the real thing. It's a representation. Uh-huh. Ah, so when I talk to you authentically, face to face and from the heart and so forth and so on, then there's nuances there. There's all kinds of aspects to verbal, nonverbal communications, the different senses involved. You, know, which you, don't even just, realize. you touched on something that I, I wonder if other people are going to relate to. When I call a friend and I get an answering machine, it says, you know, you've reached Laura Silverman. And I wanted to scream, no, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't. That's a great example. That's all I want to say about that. Yeah. And I don't feel like I have. Well, you haven't. And, and as a matter of fact, I think some enlightened people that uh, that have these machines will will put the out the recording on it as you've received you've received you're reaching the home office off or this is the answering machine off, or something like that. Yes. Yes. I like yeah. that better. OK, well, go ahead. So. So anyway, uh, so if if this is true, that the only way I really get to know myself is in authentic communion with another. I got on to the notion that, well, wait a minute, if I'm mediated by either voice, telephone, or by by video or something like that, um, I'm really not authentically communicate, in communion with another. Uh, there was a book I read a number of years ago, and it talked about the, it was called something like the spirituality of cyberspace. And it was a series of interviews done with people that are, uh, are certified spiritual people, uh, uh, church leaders, or uh um, bodhisattvas or, or whatever. And, 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 the, uh, and the person that was um, being interviewed at the end ran a state-of-the-art video conferencing system, much as we're doing here, but much more sophisticated. This thing would follow you around the room. It had surround sound and all of that. And the, and the, uh, and the interviewer asked this person, who happened to be from India, by the way, um, well, this is just like real life, isn't it? And he answered, Oh no, what do you mean? What's missing? Prana. What is missing? Prana, life force. Uh-huh. That's uh-huh. what's missing. Yes. And, it, and, and look at it this way too. When I'm in, when I'm, when I'm talking like this, uh, I'm talking, I really, I'm talking to a mirror of myself. I'm not talking to you, a mirror of myself. I hear your voice and I respond to it. But really, what I'm doing is interpreting the vision, what I see, what I hear, according to my own background up until this moment. I'm not really changing. It it, it can't get through. Um, I have a background in telecommunications and uh, and on the technical side. And uh, my elevator speech, given that, goes like this. Have you ever been on the telephone with somebody you're close to, maybe a family member? could be a boss. And you get to a point in the conversation, you say, you know, I think we better talk about this face to face. Oh, yes. Yes. What's going on there? What's going on there is something like this. Can you lift up your telephone when it's pointed at that symphony orchestra and get that full experience of the symphony orchestra? What happens when you have music on your telephone? You hear it all the time. It's kind of tinny, isn't it? It doesn't sound real. So you buy yourself a really high quality music system, sound system, and you could pay tens of thousands of dollars to get 1% more performance out of that thing. Is it gonna be real, real up there? No, it's not, the, it's not the same thing and never will be. It, it could get close, 
They can replicate it, but this is not a pipe. Well, you know, you, you feel that. I mean, I feel that. Maybe you do too. The only thing really missing, and now I'm talking two and a half years of pandemic, where we're really not allowed to be with people and we can't touch and we can't hug and we can't kiss. And um, and I feel it physically. I feel I want an armful. I want an armful of my friends. I want to be able to throw my arms around actual people. <laughs> and that's missing. And I, I, I just wonder, because this, this seems to have taken the place kind of um, for me and for a lot of people, I think, kind of successfully as a way to visit. All that you say is true, but it's what we've got. I, I think that this is a wonderful, wonderful medium to use when it's, when it, when it's looked at correctly. And that is okay. to, uh, to maintain existing relationships. Yes. Not so much to, to form new ones because, because it's not quite real. But it can serve, and it does serve very valuably to maintain existing ones, to keep people in a more shallow, superficial contact or connection with each other. What do you so think? This is what thought, what so you I'm, not, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not anti-technology. I'm for technology, but in the way of using it in the service of human endeavors, okay. rather not use it using me, which it will do. Yes. Well, so I, I've, I, I feel exactly the same about what you're saying, you know, about about using it properly. Uh, what do you think has happened in, you know, you hear a lot about this, about uh, children who spend all their time on their devices, can't really communicate with people anymore. And do you think this is true? Yes, absolutely. Do you? Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's unfortunate. And um and, and I'll put a little plug in for some of the stuff we're doing in the, a, a, a new initiative in the Marin Philosophical Society. Okay. Uh, we, are, uh, we have just embarked on an initiative to bring to, for, an, for a philosophical essay contest for high school seniors. Oh, wonderful. I saw that. Yes. And the idea is to encourage critical thinking. Now, do you want to define critical thinking for people right now? Because um, there are very many levels of it. Yes, I, I would I would say, and, and you're right. I would I would say it, it can get very very deep, but but so, anything that is beyond the superficial, you but you you might recall that uh, you might have read the book by Kahneman that talked about uh, fast thinking and slow thinking. You might be familiar with that book. No, but I'd like to. Oh, it's a must read. That's, it was a, bit, that's a big seller for a lot of years. And the, yeah, and 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 most of the time, and aided and abetted by technology, we have to react. We we are increasingly losing the ability to respond. And so yet, say, and yet, we are faced with a demand to respond instantly. When somebody sends you a text, if you don't answer it in you know two and a half minutes, you get a phone call or something saying, "Didn't you get my text?" Okay, so here's an example. That's a great example, and here's an example of how. The, and they're uh, and they're the, and they're angry. <laughs> well, go ahead. Yeah, this is an example of how our culture, our very culture, not just here uh, in our city, but worldwide, has been changed and affected by this medium because of expectations. Pardon? Because of expectations? Uh, no, it's be, it's because of the instantaneous. You you can push a button right. and change everything. You don't like something? I don't like you. I could I could get you out of this picture right away. Oh yeah. Now why is that important? 
because the way that I get along with human beings, and you know, we've got some stuff going on in the world. I've got to do with, you know, it could be wars or whatever it has to be, and people against people. Well, how do you address that? Because when we're now we're talking about life and death stuff. Well, critical thinking could be the ability, just simply the ability to slow down and pause and absorb what's being said, and having having the ability to think about it a bit, and maybe maybe just be open to other points of view. And you could we could go on for the, for a long time on this, but I see you're nodding in in agreement and identification. Yes, you know the, the other thing that that with with this um, you know kind of communication, this technological communication, I noticed early on it was really disturbing that I had said I'd sent something to a friend and I said something and I was being kind of glib. I, I was being I thought I was making a joke. And she took it seriously and she was so upset that I could say such a thing. She couldn't hear the tone of my voice. Janet, when you were talking to your friend, were you talking directly to her over? No, over? no, we were emailing. Emailing. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. So there was no way of now they've got all these, you know, emoticons and little things you can add to help to help put your emotional tone back in. But isn't that kind of a pity that we can't just do that directly? Well, again, this is the price you pay for being able to do what we're doing now. Um, you tuned in to our, uh, last Monday, we had an event for the Marine Philosophical Society. Yes. And I, I was just blown away by one person who tuned in from the country of Crete. Crete, actually, it's not a country, it's an island belonging to Greece. And, and I, th I think that'll, that'll set a record that I didn't even know we would have to set. I mean, I was, I was just because she was a friend of the uh, of the speaker. Yes. And and we're able to talk just like we're talking right now. And, okay. and except for the fact that she said, I'm, I'm coming from Crete, would not have known the difference. You're, I mean, you're right here. And, and you know something I, there used to be. I still feel that there is something comforting was when you would call a friend on the telephone and the, I'm talking 1948, 1952, you call a friend on the telephone and you knew when they picked up, you knew exactly where they were standing in their house because you knew where their telephone was. You knew a lot of things. And now location does not matter. There's a positive and a negative for that. You know, like you say, you can talk to somebody in Crete like they're next door, but there's not the intimacy of knowing location like we used to. You know, you, you bring up a very good point. Um, this kind of communication is really all about efficiency. Yes, that's right. As opposed, as opposed to effectiveness. And what you just said uh, generated a thought in my mind, and that is, and this in in the name of efficiency, kind of a business type of thing. When you have a a lot of remote, and because of COVID, it really accelerated the remote work type situation. Right. But when you have that, think about what's missing. You're going to go to a business meeting. You have to drive a car, usually park it in the garage, go through a lobby, go into an elevator, go into an office, maybe wait for a while, be asked to come, in, come into a room. And there's a whole kind of a ritual around this. And that's not there anymore. You're just in the meeting. There's something missing there. Do you miss something that ritual missing. yourself? Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, but it's, it's not a conscious thing. It, 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 it exp I experienced that in the sim way similar to what you said a minute ago. You can't put your arms around it. Yeah. That doesn't real. The yeah. prana is missing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
this this is this is a huge I don't know whether it's a huge problem or not, but you know, if I may, it segues directly into letter writing, which I am a real fan of. And do you did you well, you must have written letters when you were young because we're about the same age and we didn't have, you know. You were a letter writer? I I I have uh, used handwriting. I remember my my grades in grammar school and cursive writing were very good until around around the fourth grade. They went they went south Why? dramatically. Any reason? I, I, I'm sure there was, but I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you why. Uh, okay. I, I've never really spent time speculating around it, and I have to admit that when it came time to uh, that I would have to use cursive writing, for example, to get admitted to that doctoral program I talked about earlier, I demurred. I, I, I said, blue book? I haven't seen a blue book in 30 years. Uh, how about my using word processing? And he looked at me like, what are you talking about? Because this fellow was older than both of us, all right? And he was, an, uh, I think they called him emeritus, retired professor. Yeah. And, and, I, and I said something about, well, you know, we're moving into this age and it's kind of nice to belong to an institution that's using the most modern things, whatever I was saying. And he said, oh, okay, you could do that. Well, you know, handwriting is huge. I mean, I think, first of all, when you do write a letter in your handwriting, and people sometimes say to me, well, my handwriting's so bad. No such thing. It's yours. I did have one friend who wrote me a lovely, wonderful letter of thanks for something. And his handwriting was, in. I mean, I think I could pretty much decipher anything at this stage of my life. No, I couldn't make out one letter of this man's scrawl. What he did was he typed the same message, the same letter, and included it oh. in the envelope. Oh. Which Bless. I thought was just brilliant of him. And, you know, he knew to send something in his hand. But, you know, when you write letters, people, when you actually write a letter and send it, people feel, it seems, so extra valued and they say, oh, that you took the time to write this by hand. Handwriting, like this. you know, they're not, they're not teaching. I understand they're not teaching cursive handwriting anymore in school. And I must say, when, when my granddaughter, she was seven and she signed something. In, I was so, I, I started screaming, you've got cursive. I was so excited. But one, one woman who was a guest on Love Letters many years ago was very distressed because her son was not learning um, handwriting in school. And she wanted him to learn cursive handwriting. He was in the first grade and he just refused. He was absolutely not interested. And she tried to make a case for it. And he said, I, you know, boring. She finally said to him, you know, if you learn cursive, you will be able to read the secret thoughts of grownups. Oh. That kid was on board. I like it. Yeah. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot even to be lost from that. Now, when we get packages, we have to sign on those tablets for it. And it turns our handwriting into something that could only be done by a maniac. It's got nothing to do. But it's also made a real difference, apparently, from a handwriting analyst, uh, I know, in court. You can't, you can't, handwriting used to be a very valuable tool in solving crimes. And with all this technological uh, way of communicating, that's gone apparently. I like to I like to use the uh, the the term. It flattens the experience. No, oh, yeah. So you and and as you talk, 
uh, I hadn't thought about this before, but as you talk, what's coming up for me is seeing an original Van Gogh painting with its textures that you could see and a print of the same painting, uh-huh. which is a flattened experience. And, and my subjective uh, experience of the, of, the, uh, of the print, which is very nice to look at, I've got a print of a Klimt in, in, in my bedroom. It's a lovely thing. But it's, it's just, you, you can't put your arms around it. Right. It's what, it's what you were saying. And I think handwriting is that. It's a, it's a creative expression of the, of the author, of the, uh, really? of the person that's doing it. Yeah. And it's not just cursive writing. It's, it's the arts in general that are being taken out of our education system, aren't they? I guess that's true. Yes. And, and for and, what? For what? What is it being exchanged for? In other words, what are we gaining in your view here? Well, I once, and this brings up a story now. Um, I don't, I, in my view, I don't think we're gaining anything. Now. We're, we're losing something very important. And what, and what we're losing is our humanity, frankly. And, and I can segue now into this, this stuff called artificial intelligence. Uh-huh. Because, because, and this, this is something which is lurking latently for all of us. And, and again, it could be ultimately beneficial or ultimately destroy us as a race. It really, really yes. could. Yes. With super artificial intelligence, the, the next generations and so forth, which is probably anywhere from five, uh, maybe sooner, maybe 10 years away, something like that comes in. Uh, what little experience we've had right now, for example, uh, spell check. Okay. Oh. There's an example right there. That's just, that's just trivial stuff. Well, not only that, it's so irritating. Try to say something in your mess. I happen to use, um, uh, you know, email like a real letter. And I don't see email as a substitute for a letter, by the way. I see email as a very slow telephone conversation. Ah. You say something and then you wait and the person responds. And that's that's great. But um, I forgot what I was going to say. Anyway, yes, the... the um, well, you go ahead. What you were saying, I've just well, let, let me let me let me take up. And I'm, so I'm talking about artificial intelligence that that will, in effect, um, mold your behavior, including your thinking. Okay, now that's crucial. That's big. How do you see that? And there are signs of that today. There was a one of those uh, video games. Uh, I can't remember the name of it offhand. Came out a couple of years ago. Uh, it was very popular, bought, and a lot of people bought it and so forth, and lots of money were made by the, by the company and the designers and the stores and everybody up and, down, up and down that chain. But what happened very quickly, like within 48 hours or something like that, is that, is that the, they took on sponsors uh, that would, you walk down the street and you look for clues in this game, and subtly it'll guide you into going into this particular store. Right. You don't yeah, even know that. that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it multiply that by a hundred about it, it affecting your thinking and what you're doing and your actions and so forth and so on. And the, and the essence of it is, is that your thoughts as a, and your actions as a human being no longer emanate from who you are inside. They're responding, or in this case, reacting to somebody else's menu on the outside. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, you have a computer program. This is a minor example. Um, of how to uh, to do art, uh-huh. or how to write oh. or write or write prose. Yes. And what you have is a series of menus 
that were designed probably not by an artist or an author, but probably by a systems designer, uh-huh. you know, and maybe in consultation with those other people, but they gave you something called a menu and you get to pick off somebody else's menu, what you want to create. Okay. It's so you. that's tantamount to buying no disrespect, a Hallmark card to express yourself. You're counting on somebody else's expression. Yeah. Mimic your, but what about, uh, you know, I, I think we've all been, I mean, I was at a concert, an outdoor concert once and with one of my daughters was, you know, a musician was performing and there were a lot of people sitting in this great big outdoors and my other daughter looked around and she looked at me. She said, look at this. She said, everyone is on a device. No one was present. And, you know, you find that when you're, I don't know how you react to this. You find that when you're with friends. And I think we're a little bit past this now, maybe. But I remember when, when cell phones first came out, I was in a restaurant and I was sitting with a friend and there was a man behind me, a couple of tables outdoors on his cell phone, talking at a decibel level that I think is illegal. He was so loud and he wanted to be very important. And he wanted the people around him to know how important he was. (laughs) And it was clear, you know, I'm indispensable. I finally turned around and I looked at him and I said, use your indoor voice. And he, he kind of was caught short. He said, oh, I'm so sorry. He didn't realize it. He didn't realize it. Exactly. That's a great example. You have lunch with a friend. And (laughs) I love this one. This is so you're you're, I I don't bring my cell phone out when I'm having lunch with a friend. I don't take it with me when I go on walks. I I don't use it like most people do, I don't think. And so I'm talking to somebody and whatever we're saying, and the person is uh uh-huh, 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 looking at the I said, will you turn the thing off? Yes, they turn the thing off, but they they put it on. They can they put it in their purse or somewhere where they can still tell if they're being summoned because they're still looking at it. What do you do about that? Well, if it it, it depends on on the on the age and the maturity and the openness that person has. But I like I like to talk a little bit uh, and give you a little humorous uh, vignette here. Uh, as you talked about the importance of the person and they're talking on the phone, I'm reminded that uh, way long ago, I was going down the road of the street in Beverly Hills, California, where I was working there at the time. And these, and of course, there's entertainment industry and movie moguls and lots of egos. And the thing at those times was a car telephone. I mean, very few people. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So, so it turns out, that there, there were examples of people going down the street with a car, te- not the cell phone, just the receiver and the cord in their ear so that they were appearing to be very busy and very involved. I know, isn't that, I had lunch with a friend many years ago when cell phones first came out. And this, this, and I hadn't seen him in about six months. He lived in another city. He was a very close friend. We met at a restaurant and we were sitting there and his cell phone was on the table. I'd never seen anyone do that before, but anyway, his cell phone was on the table and he, it rang and he said, oh, I have to take this. Oh. And uh, he went outside. Oh, no, he started, I said, you can't talk on that inside a restaurant, not allowed. 
And he said, oh, okay. I thought he was going to hang up. He went outside. He came back 20 minutes later. I'd been sitting in this restaurant by myself, 20 minutes. He's outside. He finally comes back and he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I got three other calls I needed to take. Okay. Sits down and he puts the phone down, still face up. And I looked at him. I mean, the devil made me do it. I said, darling, if you're expecting a kidney, by all means, you keep that thing on. And he said, oh, okay. And he turned it off and we had a lovely lunch. People just, people, people need to feel important and they need to feel attractive and they need to feel like they mean something to somebody, which is why I like to have people write love letters to, because you have the power to do that with a letter. Do you, okay, I'm going to ask you now because it's time for me to ask that. And I always do. If you were to write a love letter right now to somebody and the love letter definition is broad, it's thank you notes, it's apologies, it's lust, it's friendship, it's memories, anything at all. To whom would you write it right now? Probably to myself. Pardon me? Probably to myself. Good for you. Okay. That's interesting. I like when people do that. What would you say? I would, I would like to put my spiritual arms around myself as a human being. Yes. And, and I, this is my relationship with myself because mm -hmm. I realize that I will project that out into my other relationships with other people and into the world in general. True enough. You feel and good. All about I can, yourself, and, yeah. and I, and I cannot control. I have nothing to say about how you or anybody else responds or reacts to my actions that's out of my but once i let them go that's what happens and that that of course ties into your email communications too because you're not communicating with somebody else they're interpreting your writing in that email based on their history and how they view those particular words and sentences but you and, know, you and you misunderstandings can happen all the time so my love letter would be to myself as a human being and and Sometimes okay, so it's a grudging. Say, Dear Peter, go ahead. Yeah, sometimes it's a grudging acceptance of you know me and all my words, if you want, or foibles. But to the extent I can, I can, I can accept and in and at times love who I am, warts and all. There used to be this uh, this guy called Leo Buscaglia who called himself the love professor. You remember? I remember him? him? Yes, I do. And he would say his name, and I knew he was in love with himself. My name is Leo Buscaglia. Let me ask you something, though. When you write this letter, you're talking in kind of general terms. Will you specify to yourself the things that you really do love about yourself and that you admire yourself for? Specify. I've never. It's not. It's not what I normally do. Um, I can do it. I can, really I can do it. And and, and uh, one thing I would say is that uh, there was a time. Well, it was a while ago now, but I would never, never have agreed to what we're doing right this minute. Why? Um, I was terrified. I was in sales and I was terrified of talking before a group. Can you believe that? I guess so, you know, but so you're having a whale of a time though, right now? Now? Oh. <laughs> I know I it's, am. It's almost real. Yes, there you go. <laughs> you know, there's, there's something about writing a letter filled with specifics that is so powerful to receive, whether you write it to somebody else or to yourself, and you'll mail it to yourself, right? You put it in an envelope, stamp it, and stick it in the mailbox and wait for it to come to your house, correct? I actually have done that um, 
I was at the southernmost mailbox in the world, at, in, down in Tierra del Fuego. This actually, happened. this actually happened. Okay. And you're encouraged to mail something to yourself. And I did. Good. I never received it, but what the heck. But oh, I did, but I didn't mail it. You know, you'll receive this one, I'm sure. And I think you're going to find, and I want you to get in touch with me and let me know if you would. You'll find that the you who wrote the letter and the Peter Katkoff sitting there reading it, two different people. I, I do have some experience that now I'm relating to it. Uh, when I worked in the, in the corporate world and I would take like three week vacations and I'd uh -huh. go out to foreign places and I'd write a series of draft notes, which were, and in those days we didn't have word processing. We had people called administrative clerks that would, would type up our letters and for our signature when we get back. And I'd write these letters, there were a lot of them and I'd write them quickly. And I come back three weeks later and look at it and I wondered who wrote that? <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. It, it, it came from a different place. You know, sometimes I don't know what I know until I say what I say or I write what I write. Good for you. Okay, well, isn't that the point? That is such a good lesson. That's a wonderful, strong platform on which to end. Although I hate to end, it's so much fun talking to you. But I want to thank you for doing this with me. And before we say goodbye, I just want to point out one more thing that you said that I think is so important. And that is, you said, you know, once you do it, you're done. You, you're talking about a message out and once you, you do it, the same is true with a love letter. Once you slip it into that mailbox, you're finished. You don't get to call the person later and say, well, did you get my letter? And what did you think? You're done. It's a gift and you're finished. And, yes. and what do you get to expect in return? Nothing. You've, you've sent a gift, and if you're doing it for some kind of expectation and something in return, I think you've missed the point. For a love letter. I mean, there are letters where you do need it. So I like that you made that point. Philosophically, it's all about life is in the giving. 100%. Yes. Yes. Thank that you. Is, that, is the, that is the communications. That needs yes. to be, it's a heart to heart, human to human type of thing. Okay. That's even a better platform on which to end so many lessons. I, I just thank you so much for doing this. I'm so glad we met. And as far as you can't forge personal relationships this way, sometimes you can. It's certainly a start. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think it feels like we have. So if there's some other subject that you'd like to talk about on Love Letters Live, will you come back? Oh, of course. Okay. I, and I would, I would, I would like to encourage people who, uh, have, if anybody has been interested in what we're talking about, uh, the philosoph the Marin Philosophical Society is not just about philosophy in, in that sense. It's it's about science and it's about art, it's about literature, and we. Well, and it's a, it's a bright. It's not just thinking about thinking. No, it isn't. Uh, On the other hand, I was there as a guest recently because we just met and I learned about. And your speaker talked about walking, walking. And you might, like, who would think that that would fall into any level of philosophy? So much to it. I haven't stopped thinking about all the ramifications of this walking. It was great. Yes. So I would say to people, 100%, join up. You want to give your website, please? Uh, there is a website. It's not current, but we're looking, we're looking for somebody that can maintain this at a reasonable price because we're not a 
for-profit thing, but okay. it's the Britain Philosophical Society. You, you okay. can get it.com and we're there and you'll see us and you'll see me. Okay, but that's how people can join if they want. They can do that uh, or and what you'll see is, are, is information on how you can contact us. Please do. Okay, thank you. I, I encourage people to do it. It was so interesting. Okay, I'll be back and I'll talk to you later and thank you. Thank you very much, Janet. Appreciate so I'm just going to say goodbye for now. Bye for now.